people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Continuing in our overview Bible sermon series, uh, like we're doing in the kids' talk, we're doing with the grown-ups, we're seeing how the Bible fits together. And we come today to this majestic passage in Isaiah 40. So before we look further together, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word. Uh, this passage reminds us that your word stands forever. Uh, we can depend on it. It is absolutely dependable. Uh, you do not change, and what you say does not change. Thank you for the solid bedrock that provides for our lives. As we reflect on the truths of this passage together, help us to... Uh, see what that is and to more uh, firmly hold on to it such that we are carried through life through a growing and ever-burning brighter faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as we wait for his ultimate return. Amen. Uh, Viktor Frankl was one of Europe's leading psychiatrists, but from 1942 to 1945, uh, he endured imprisonment in Auschwitz and three other Nazi concentration camps. And in these camps, uh, Viktor Frankl witnessed the devastating effects of people re le reaching that point where they've lost all hope. Uh, he wrote about it in his book subsequently, A Man's Search for Meaning. And this is what he observed in the concentration camps. And I quote... There were some prisoners who had lost all hope. Uh, they had lost any faith in the future. Uh, they sensed that they were doomed. And with this loss of belief and loss of hope, they also lost any spiritual vitality they had. They let themselves decline and become subject to mental and physical decay. Uh, usually this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmates. Uh, usually, it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get, up, get dressed and to wash or to go out on the parade ground. And no entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by an illness, 
He refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. And there he remained, lying in his own excrement, and nothing bothered him anymore. A devastating insight into the black, bleak despair of somebody who has lost all hope. And the people of Judah in the 8th century BC would have had a similar experience. They were looking down a dark tunnel and they could see no end in sight. They had lost all hope as they languished in exile in Babylon. Uh, we're working our way through the Bible, and of course, uh, I emailed this out the other week to the congregation. It's a very helpful overview of the whole of the Bible in one diagram, and it's, it beautifully charts also where we're at today. So, of course, we've seen, as we saw in the kids' talk, uh, the Bible opens with God's people living in God's place under God's rule. Uh, that is the high point. That is how things should be. But with the fall, uh, that is all lost. But then, uh, through the promise to Abraham and God working out his promises uh, through the people of Israel, uh, God rebuilds. Uh, he builds a people for himself, and he brings them to his land, uh, and ultimately they reach this high point under the reign of Solomon, who we looked at today in the kids' talk. Uh, that is the zenith of the history of Israel, when they live in God's land under his rule, under the wise Solomon, uh, experiencing God's uh, bounty and his blessing. Uh, and that is the high point. As we've seen in previous sermons, of course, um, then came the crisis. Uh, Solomon strayed from the Lord, as did the people. Uh, the kingdom was divided after his uh, reign. Uh, so that was the first great tragedy for the nation of Israel, the division of the kingdom into two separate kingdoms. Uh, and then eventually their slide into apostasy. They turn their backs on God. They follow and trust other nations and other gods. And God brings his judgment on them. Uh, the ten tribes in the north, the kingdom of Israel, uh, fall to Assyria and are intermarried with other people groups and intermixed, and they lose their national identity forever, uh, forming the Samaritan group. Uh, 150 years later, uh, the two remaining tribes in the south and the southern kingdom of, of Judah, uh, they then go down the same track and end up being conquered uh, under God's hand. Uh, he uses the Babylonians to bring his judgment on Judah, and the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar conquer Judah and take the uh, people uh, in two waves, out from the land and from Jerusalem uh, to uh, Babylon, the capital city. And so that's where we are today. Uh, we're looking at the prophet Isaiah. Uh, his ministry is actually 150 years before the Babylonian conquest. And yet, of course, he predicts uh, the Babylonian conquest and the exile. Uh, he names it for what it is. Uh, he says, this will be God's hand, uh, God's judgment on Judah's sin. However, uh, like the prophet Ezekiel, uh, Isaiah doesn't just preach judgment, uh, but also he preaches hope to the hopeless, these hopelessly crushed exiles. Uh, Isaiah's message of restoration beyond the judgment uh, would have made compelling reading to the people of Judah in Babylon 150 years later. Now, if you were to read um, the preceding chapter, uh, Isaiah chapter 39, that's all about Isaiah's prediction of what happened, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem under the hands of the Babylonian and the exile. But then we get to the chapter 40, which follows. And chapter 40 opens with a very different tone. Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, 
Comfort my people, says your God. Comfort, what a word, to people in black despair. Comfort, of course, is used here in the sense of bringing relief in affliction, uh, easing feelings of grief or despair. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. But what is the comfort that God says to his people? And that's what we're going to spend our time looking at this morning. Uh, The first aspect of this comfort is that the Lord will forgive his people for their sin. Isaiah 40 verse 1 again. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. The time of judgment would come to an end. Uh, The price for sin would be paid. The account would be settled. As it says in verse 2, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Now, the term double here uh, is not used in the sense of twice what would have been due. That would be unjust. It would be a form of overcharging. Uh, Rather, double is used here in the sense of an exact match. Uh, Maybe if you've got kids, you uh, enjoy very much that pastime where you put a a blob of uh, paint on a piece of paper and then you fold it and then you open it up and you see on the other side the exact match for the blobs and you create amazing things, butterflies or whatever they be. Well, it's in that sense that the term double is used here. It's an exact match for the people's sin. It has been paid for exactly. This then immediately raises the question... Uh, Is this saying that we pay for our sin ourselves? And if so, how could uh, 70 years in exile possibly have been sufficient for paying for centuries of sinning by God's people? Well, in two weeks' time, we're actually going to get the answer because in two weeks' time, we come to uh, Isaiah chapter 53. And that's when the puzzle will be solved. Uh, In Isaiah 53, we'll see that the sins of the people are actually paid for by the servant of the Lord, the one who will suffer in the place of his people. So God says, Comfort, comfort my people. Proclaim to her, her sins have been paid for. Let me reflect on this, uh, how it applies to us today. Uh, If you are somebody who trusts in Jesus... Is this truth something that you take comfort in? Uh, Do you take regular comfort that all your sins have been exactly paid for in full? It's a wonderful comfort, especially when we've messed up and we are feeling guilty and low and condemned. Uh, Billy Graham's wife, uh, Ruth Bell Graham, actually grew up in China as a missionary kid. Uh, One of the native servants who worked for their family and lived with them was this uh, wiry little woman called Wang Nai Nai. Uh, She had a vibrant faith in Christ and she faithfully served the family and her Christian life and joyful service had this amazing impact on the children. It was only after the children had grown up that they were actually told of the evil life their nanny had before she became a Christian. 
Uh, she and her husband used to run a human trafficking business of young girls to be used in prostitution in Shanghai. This was before she was a Christian. Uh, when Ruth, uh, this Billy Graham's wife, heard this story, she suddenly understood why it was possible that her nanny would always sing one of her favorite old hymns. There is a fountain filled with blood. And Ruth then understood why in particular uh, this nanny loved the hymn's final verse. And it says this, The dying thief rejoices to see the fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And Ruth recalls how the nanny always sung that final chapter with incredible emotion and heartfelt joy because it was true for her. Her sins have been washed away in the blood of the fountain, the blood of Christ, of course. The fact that our sins have been paid for by Christ is a comfort. And it's a comfort we should hold dear, even if the way in which we've sinned looks a bit different to that nanny. It is an incredible comfort for God's people. So, let's keep moving. Uh, the second aspect of this comfort for God's people was the Lord himself coming in glory. At verse 3. A voice of one calling, In the desert prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. God himself was coming. And so they were to make preparation for his arrival and to prepare the way. Now then, uh, in the ancient Near East world, if there was a, a royal visiting dignitary, uh, often incredible preparations were made uh, for a, a special processional way for him to come. And so here we have this voice crying out to make a special professional way. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Make a highway. Prepare the way. Often when I'm driving up uh, the M1 freeway, I sort of gaze in wonder at the, that incredible cutting they've made through the hillside, where it must be at least about 80 or 90 meters tall. It's a huge cutting. And to see the way they must have blasted all that earth and rock out to make the highway through there. And of course, you get beyond that, and then you get to the Hawkesbury River and the big river valley there and the wonderful bridge. And so where we just cruise on over. We don't have to scramble away over the, this monstrous hill and then down into the valley. And such is, uh, it must have been an incredible engineering feat in, an, in its day. In a similar way, there was a huge engineering feat to make way a highway for God. Uh, look at verse 4. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low, the rough ground shall become level, and the rugged places a plain. Do you see? Some serious civil engineering was going to be prepared to get ready for the arrival of the Lord himself. And what an event it would be when the Lord did come. Verse 5. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so the people waited, and they waited, and they waited, 
and nothing happens. And the last of the Old Testament prophets fell silent, and centuries passed until one day in the first century AD, a voice was heard in the desert. Matthew chapter 3 begins with these words. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert in Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John was the voice in the wilderness. He was the one telling the people to prepare the way for the Lord. And so John prepared the way for Jesus, the one in whom the Lord God himself came into the world in all his glory. When John the Baptist prepared the way for the Lord in the desert, uh, there were no spades or pickaxes. There were no JCBs. There was no civil engineering. He didn't even own a pair of boots. The construction work of John was to prepare the highway by preparing people's hearts. You know, of course, that John called on people to turn to God and to repent of their sin and to be baptized. And such has been the case ever since. How do we prepare for the coming of Jesus? By being a people who have humble, contrite hearts that receive him as Savior and Lord. Let's keep moving. A third aspect of this comfort that God gives his people is that he will keep his word. Uh, Verse 6 of our passage. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. Because the breath of the Lord blows on them, surely the people are grass. God's people in 8th century BC were surrounded by powerful nations. Under King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonian Empire had spread unstoppably. The Babylonians seemed to have absolute power. But here, God puts these people in perspective. He says, all men, they're like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. People may seem scary, and people may seem sometimes powerful, but they are soon gone. They're like the grass or the flowers which are here one day and gone the next. People soon fade. They wither and they die. All it takes is the breath of the Lord blowing on them and they've gone as easily as a child blows the head off a dandelion in seed. Life is transient. The vigor of youth soon passes to the frailty of old age. Uh, How powerful is that exemplified in the sad case of Muhammad Ali, uh, once the greatest boxer in the world, finally succumbing to Parkinson's disease. And you'll have no doubt seen uh, that time when he appeared on the TV show, hardly able to move onto the stage to sit down. A sad reminder of our frailty. And yet, God's word, in stark contrast, endures forever. 
Humans are frail, but God's Word is robust, and it never, ever fails. Verse 8. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the Word of our God stands forever. Do you remember Jesus' words? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. God's Word, it's living, it's abiding, and it's powerful. Uh, This uh, verse is actually quoted uh, in the New Testament in 1 Peter. Uh, He makes the point that it's through God's Word that we are born again to new life that will never fail, an imperishable seed. God's Word endures, and it creates new life that will never fail. So do you see? That is something to take comfort in. Things and people come and go, but the Word of the Lord, it remains. It is entirely dependable. It will never pass away, and that means we can build our lives on it. And in so doing, we are born again, and we have eternal life. As John, uh, 1 John 2 verse 17 says, The world and its desires, they pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. And that is a comfort for God's people. The fourth and final aspect of this comfort is, the Lord will shepherd his flock. Verse 9. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, Lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, Here is your God. We've seen uh, already that the Lord is coming, but this tells us what the coming Lord is like. Verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arm rules for him. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. You see what it's saying? The the coming Lord is powerful. His arm rules, and that is great comfort to God's people. The Lord has absolute power. He will overthrow our enemies because his arm is strong and it rules. Now, in some circles, a key measure of how butch you are if you're a man is the size of your bicep. And many hours are spent in the gym doing bicep curls. And clearly, uh, I've been spending my time doing other things, as I'm sure you realize by now. But what size of the biceps are God's biceps? And the picture here is of God having massive biceps. His arm is powerful. In an arm wrestling match with God, There is only ever going to be one winner, and that should be a huge comfort to God's people. But the Lord combines the power of the warrior with the care of the shepherd. Verse 11. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart, and he gently leads those that have young. Do you see? The arm that rules with might is the same arm that holds his lambs tight. Imagine the world arm wrestling champion. One minute he's using his tree trunk arm to defeat his opponent, and the next he's using it 
to pick up and hold his two-year-old daughter and to protect her. That is the picture of the Lord we're given. What a comfort it is to know that the Lord is our shepherd king. To know his loving care. To know his protection in life and in death. To be able to say with David in Psalm 23, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because you are with me. To have that wonderful assurance that beyond the grave is life. Revelation 7 verse 17. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. Uh, We tend to turn to many different things for comfort. We turn to comfort eating. We turn to comfort shopping. But the ultimate comfort we need in life and in death is the Lord himself. The ultimate comfort is knowing the Lord as our shepherd king. Knowing him who has the power to deal with our greatest enemies with sin and with death and with the devil. And also the one who has the love to do what verse 11 says. To tend and to gather and to gently lead. So in conclusion, uh, there's amazing uh, statements in the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, This was put together in the 16th century as a statement of faith. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism is a a summary of biblical truth in the form of 129 questions and answers. And the first question is this, and I'll put it uh, on the screen. What is your only comfort in life and death? Uh, And this is the answer. Let me read it to you. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What a wonderful summary of that comfort and that hope we have in Christ. And it sums up wonderfully everything we've been seeing today in Isaiah 40. And when we think about drawing these strands together, and as we close, there are two ways in which this particularly applies to us today. Firstly, freedom from guilt, and secondly, motivation to reach out. Certainly, freedom from guilt. Sometimes, as Christians, uh, we do need a challenge to move out of our comfort zone, uh, to be bolder in telling others the gospel, uh, to be more committed to serving, uh, to be more sacrificial in giving, Uh, When we talk that way, we're using comfort in the sense of having uh, become too comfortable. And sometimes we do need that sort of challenge. But sometimes, as Christians, we need an encouragement to move into our comfort zone. We need to draw upon the comfort in the sense of the reassurance and the relief God provides for his people. 
that's a comfort zone we need to move into and to remain in. Sometimes as Christians, we may be living outside the comfort zone God intends for us. We may be living burdened by guilt and regret. And we don't draw upon the comfort we should have from these wonderful realities that we've been seeing in Isaiah 40. We are forgiven. And the exact amount of our sin debt has been paid. The exact amount in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the second strand of application which comes out of this is a motivation to reach out. Uh, Isaiah 40 promises the coming of the Lord in all his glory. And the Lord did come, of course, 2,000 years ago, as John testifies in his gospel, John 1 verse 14. Uh, The word of the Lord became flesh. He made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. But we know that there is a second coming of the Lord. And we know that when he comes at that second coming, his return will be all the more glorious. As Isaiah says, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. And on that day, when the Lord Jesus returns, all mankind will see it. And so still today, we seek to prepare the way for the Lord's return. We get people ready for his return. We reach out to people. We're intentional in developing relationships with the unchurched. We can't afford to wait for them to come to our services and our meetings. We've got to go to them. We've got to befriend them, walk beside them in life, love them, serve them. And when the Lord gives us the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with them, we need to reach out. They're not going to come to us. We need to be intentional in building bridges with the people so the Lord can use them for his glory. Amen. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for this incredible passage uh, which points to the coming of the Lord Jesus. Uh, He has come and he will return and we look forward to that incredible day. We pray that uh, as we wait for that day, each of us would have that faith in our hearts which comes from a humble admission of our sin and our desperate need for him to pay that debt which we cannot pay. And then we pray that each of us would then live in that comfort zone of knowing that our guilt is washed away and that our accuser, Satan, can no longer accuse us because of what Christ has done for us. And may we live with people of perspective, people with a sure hope, ready for the day when Christ returns and also reaching out to those who are never going to come to a church building or to a school hall, to a, sun, a Sunday service. Help us to go to them, to love them, uh, to befriend them and to walk through life with them, and ultimately to show them the wonder of who the Lord Jesus is. Amen.